Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take those. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We will be today in Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I want to start today by kind of uh, discussing what it is that, uh, that we have presented before us here today, and I want to do so by way of example. Um, if you are, uh, are a native here to Evansville, particularly and especially if you are from the west side, then when I um, talk about the fall festival, you have immediately a lot of things brought to your mind. First of all, you have uh, streets being closed down, traffic increasing around a particular week in the fall. If you live close enough, you might even have a particular smell that arises into your nose that you smell all the time through the week of the fall festival. And if you're like me, you might have particular foods that come to your mind. And uh, there is one particular food that is especially unique, that is especially popular, that is uh, closely associated with the fall festival, and that is, of course, none other than the brain sandwich. Has anyone in here ever eaten a brain sandwich from the fall festival? Yes, one, two, three, four, a few, a few. Here's the thing. Not many people are interested in eating brain sandwiches. They are delicious, though. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, they are amazing. And every time I talk to people about the brain sandwich and try and explain to them how delicious it is, it is extremely difficult. Why? Because as the people in here can attest to who have tried it, the brain sandwich tastes like nothing else you've ever eaten. I can think of nothing else that I've eaten that compares to a brain sandwich. So when I try to describe to someone what a brain sandwich tastes like, it is nearly impossible. I am left to try and grasp for things that maybe it's kind of like, well, it's like this and this way, but not this way. Well, it's like this and this way, but not this way. It stands alone as unique. And trying to describe to someone why it is that I enjoy it is difficult. It's very difficult. It's, uh, there are other things. Think, for example, of um, someone trying to explain to you why it is that they love the last three Star Wars movies. You're looking at it. You're knowing that there's nothing there to love. It, they're not that good. And they're desperately trying to explain to you. They're trying to grasp for straws, trying to compare to things. But to you, it seems so foreign. But unlike the last three Star Wars, the brain sandwich is actually really good. And I would encourage you to try it. But it's so hard to describe because it is so unique. There is nothing else really quite like the brain sandwich. That is really what the challenge is before us here today, that the author of Hebrews is trying to meet. The author of Hebrews has largely as his goal throughout the book, the task, the goal of describing Christ, describing the goodness of Christ, the greatness of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ as uh, the title of our sermon series would indicate. And this is a very, very difficult task. This is the challenge. The, the author of Hebrews is trying to use language to describe a transcendent Savior. He's trying to use a very limited medium to describe an infinite God. That is the task that he has before us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I think he does so in a way that brings us about as close as we will ever be brought to understanding and seeing Christ, seeing our Savior truly and rightly. And we see a part of how he does that here in our passage today in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So let's read our text today. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, 
consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we have before us your word, holy, inspired, powerful. Lord, we also have before us finite, limited, sinful human beings tasked with reading, teaching, and understanding your word. So Lord, in light of that, we ask that you would empower us with the Holy Spirit, empower me as I speak today, and empower the congregation as they listen. Lord, I pray today that we would see Christ, though maybe not completely and understandably, that we would see him truly and rightly for who he is. We pray this in his name. Amen. As I've stated over the past few weeks, and as Aaron stated when he started us through this series in Hebrews, we do not know who the author of Hebrews is. Thus far, I have uh, spent my, my sermons saying the writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, uh, and, and I could continue doing that, but I have felt that it might be simpler, easier, and yet still very, very true to simply refer to the writer of the, of the book of Hebrews as the Holy Spirit. I think that will be simpler for me. I think that will be simpler for you. And I think that that is very true for indeed all of scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is inspired, is written by Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit as its author. And so I want to give that just a brief word as we go forward now that I will be referring to the Holy Spirit as the author of Hebrews uh, for indeed that is as true as it can possibly be. The Holy Spirit has directed our attention here in Hebrews chapter 3, he has fixed our gaze upon the supremacy of Christ really throughout the entire book. That is his task. That is his goal is to fix our our gaze on Christ. But here particularly, the Holy Spirit does so by drawing upon four aspects of his supremacy for us to consider. So those four aspects that we will consider today of Christ's supremacy is first of all, his role as an apostle and high priest. Second, his faithfulness. Third, his glory, and fourth, his position. And after considering each of these, we will, uh, as we make our way through the text, we'll make one final point of application from the text, and that will be our final point. But let's start with point number one. Consider our apostle and high priest. This comes from verse one. And I love the way that this passage starts. Notice how this passage starts. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share In a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. This is a beautiful, concise explanation of what the task of the Christian really is. It is the task of all Christians. Largely, it is the task of the pastor. For me as your pastor, I get the the joy, the privilege of preaching to you week after week, of encouraging you day after day, and largely what I do up here every Sunday morning could be described as calling you church to consider Christ. 
You as a Christian, as you live your life in the world, as you come not just to worship here today, but as you go and spend time in your workplace around your coworkers, as you are with your family, it is largely the calling, the task placed upon your life and the place where you are at to consider Christ, to consider Jesus. Any evangelistic encounter that you have when you declare the good news of the gospel to someone, ultimately, what is it that you are calling them to do? You are calling them, consider Christ. For those of you who feel that there is no hope in the world, consider Christ. He has died. He has risen again from the dead. He has provided hope more than anyone could ever provide. If you are in here today and, and you think that your righteousness is something to be boasted in, that you are good in and of yourselves, consider Christ who died on the cross. Why? to pay the punishment for your sin because your righteousness is not good enough. Indeed, you are unrighteous is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter three. But consider Christ who died to grant us, to credit his righteousness to us. This is the task of the Christian, the task of all believers to consider Christ. And this is what the Holy Spirit calls us to. But in what ways are we to consider Christ? The text gives us some help. It gives us some ways in which we are to consider Jesus. He tells us, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Notice he mentions two roles, two offices that Christ fulfills. And I want to look at these two individually and seek to understand each of these roles, each of these offices in which Christ operates. First of all, Jesus the apostle. He's described in our text here as our apostle, as the apostle. And we might think this is a weird way to describe Jesus. When you hear the word apostle, what probably comes to your mind first and foremost is the 12 apostles. You think of, of those disciples whom Jesus poured into and ultimately sent out to declare the good news to the world, to spread the gospel to both the Jews and to the Gentiles and across the world. And they are, they are apostles. But when you understand what the word apostle means, you begin to see how it is correctly applied to Jesus. Because the word apostle in its simplest form simply means one who is sent. And Jesus himself says, just as I have been sent from the Father, so I am sending you, he says to the disciples, to his apostles that he sends out. So it's a true thing to say that the, the disciples that are sent out, that they are apostles. But there is also a really true and right sense in which Christ himself is the apostle, sent from God to us. We see also Jesus is the high priest. And we don't deal much with the idea of priests in our world today, maybe a little bit if you are from a Roman Catholic background or familiar with Roman Catholicism. But for us, largely, the idea of a priest is something foreign to us. But, but to the Jewish readers that, that the Holy Spirit is writing to here, they were well acquainted with the idea of a priest and with the idea of a high priest. The high priest is the one who would make sacrifices for the sins of the people, who would enter into the very presence of God, the holy of holies, the most holy place, in order to make sacrifices for the atonement of the sins of the people. And this was an important role. This was a necessary role, but it was also a, a role with great consequence, with great, great responsibility for Indeed, the, the high priest was not just any man, was not just any person selected for this task, but he was selected from a collection of priests selected by God for this task. And even once selected to be the high priest, the high priest had to go through this great process of cleansing and this ritual before he could enter into the Holy of Holies. And if he failed to do this in the right way or if he entered into the 
holy of holies in a wrong manner, he would be killed instantly. That the holiness of God is so severe that we see pictured that the high priest's role was one that required this level of dedication, this level of cleansing. And all of this, we see a picture of what Jesus is as both our apostle and our great high priest. This once again, just thinking about Jesus as our apostle, as our high priest, takes us back to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. We were taken back there last week as well. But so much of what the Holy Spirit writes in the very few first verses of Hebrews is expounded upon throughout the book of Hebrews. For what do we read in verses 1 through 3 of the very first uh, three verses of Hebrews? He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by our fathers, the prophets, and by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed to the heir of all things, through through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here we see both of these offices illustrated in the very first three verses of Hebrews. We see Jesus being sent by God, Jesus, the heir of all things, the one through whom the Lord has spoken in a way totally unique than he has ever spoken before. Jesus has been speaking to his people, but he has always done so through prophets, through men, men who were broken, men who were fallen, but now he has spoken to us by his son. We see at the end of verse three that he makes purification for our sin. He does this, why, how? As our great high priest, as the one who is equipped, as the one who is able to enter into the presence of God and make sacrifices for the sins of the people. All of this is a necessary understanding of the role that Christ plays, the offices that he fills in the life of the believer. In his explanation of this text, John Piper says that these two verses, that in in these two roles, Jesus fulfills the two greatest needs of humanity. He says that the two things that the world needs most are, first of all, a word from God, and second of all, a way to God. When we begin to understand these roles that Jesus fulfills in his person and in his work on the cross, we begin to see how he fulfills each of these needs in the life of the believer. As an apostle, he is the one who was sent by God, not merely to deliver a message, but to be the message. What I mean by this is that all messengers that have come before Christ, all the prophets who have come before him, all the apostles that came after him, All of them came to speak about God, to provide revelation concerning God, a message that he had given them. But Jesus came as the word made flesh. Jesus is not merely bringing revelation from God. He is the revelation of God. He is God revealed to us that when you look at Christ, you see God truly and rightly. That's why Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Truly, we have not just received a word, but we have received the word of God in Jesus Christ, the apostle unlike any other. But not only is he the word of God that humanity desperately needs, he is also our high priest 
And in that way, he provides for us a way to God. And he himself is that way. He is that sacrifice. He is that mediator. This is only the second time in Hebrews that the title of high priest is, is given for Christ. The idea is introduced in the last few verses of chapter 2. And this is an idea that will continue to be flushed out throughout the whole of the book of Hebrews. It is a theme, it is a theme that, that the Holy Spirit draws heavily upon as he writes to, uh, to his audience. But it's helpful for us to begin to see the way in which Christ fulfills this role for believers. Remember that originally the receivers of this letter were Christians who were formerly Jews. They would have had a firm and clear understanding of the role of a priest, a role of the one who comes and makes, uh, makes uh, sacrifices for the sins of the people. The priest, who, the one who represents the people before God, they would have had a firm and clear understanding of this. And now the author of Hebrews is beginning to show them, demonstrate to them that Christ has fulfilled that role once and for all time. That he is the great high priest, the only high priest that we will ever need. This is why we as believers today and uh, in the Protestant church don't recognize the office of priest. We see that that has no longer needed, that that is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, that he is our go-between, that he is our way to the Father. Now that we have considered his apostleship and his priesthood, now let us consider point number two, his faithfulness. Consider his faithfulness. Verse two says this, speaking of Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. The Holy Spirit does something here that we need to take note of. As a means to demonstrate the faithfulness of Christ, he directs his attention, his reader's attention, to the faithfulness of Moses. Again, this is like what I was saying earlier about the brain sandwich. That there is no really good, accurate demonstration that we as human beings can come up with, no accurate example or illustration of Christ and so the author says, okay, well, let me do this. Let me draw on something you know and hopes to make clear how Christ is the greater fulfillment. Why does he do this? Why does he choose Moses as the one to whom to grab onto, to use in his demonstration, in his illustration? He does this because he knows the place that Moses holds in the life of his Jewish hearers. That he knows the respect, the honor, the glory that they bestow upon Moses. And certainly Moses was a great prophet and deserving of admiration, deserving of respect. He was the one whom the Lord chose to lead the people out of Egypt, the one who, who served God's purposes and represented God to the people throughout the wilderness. He was the one to whom the Lord gave the law, through whom the law was mediated and given. Certainly Moses is deserving of admiration and respect. In fact, Deuteronomy Chapter 34, verses 8 through 12, writes this about him after his death. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the, in the plains of Moab 30 days. And then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Verse 10, and there had not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. 
Indeed, the goal of Scripture, the goal of the Holy Spirit in writing this is to demonstrate and play upon and grasp onto this idea that they have of Moses, that he is great, that he is worthy of glory, that he is worthy of honor, because of the role that the Lord bestowed upon him, and that he faithfully carried out. The Holy Spirit now brings him into the discussion in order to demonstrate the greatness of Christ. But notice that this is not a contrast between good and bad. What The goal of bringing Moses into this discussion is not to say, Moses sucked, Christ is awesome. That's not the point. The point is to say, consider Moses, how faithful he was, the role that he played. Consider what Christ did through him and his faithfulness. For indeed, he was faithful and he was good and he was used by God in his role. He was great. All the more reason to look at Christ and say, wow, he is really great. It is an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's the same thing we saw earlier in Hebrews with the angels. That the Holy Spirit was not trying to say that angels were weak, but rather consider how strong they are, how great they are, how powerful they are, and Christ is Lord over them, creator of them. How much greater must he be? That is the same thing that we have here considered before us with Moses. There is a great amount of significance bound up in this phrase, just as Moses. For in our text, he says, just as Moses who is faithful in all God's house. What the author, what Hebrews is trying, what, excuse me, the Holy Spirit is seeking for us to understand is what Moses' role was. Christ is that but greater. What was Moses' role to the people? He was the prophet. He was the one through whom God mediated the law. He was the go-between between God and the people. And he did so faithfully. And just as he was the mediator of that covenant, the mediator of the law, so Christ is now the mediator of the better, the greater, and the newer covenant, the covenant of grace, the covenant of redemption. That Christ's mediation, as cool and as awesome and as great as Moses' was, Christ is better. That is the point that the Holy Spirit is seeking for us to understand. Working backwards from here, we can see the argument going something like this. Remember Moses? How faithfully he served as mediator between the people and God? Well, there was one who was faithful beyond even Moses, who serves as both prophet and priest, and his name is Jesus. Consider Jesus. This carried weight with those Jewish hearers, with those audiences. For indeed, just consider how Jesus, when he spoke of the Jewish forefather Abraham, the, the respect and the honor and the glory that was bestowed on Abraham by the people, that when Jesus claimed that he was Lord over Abraham, that before Abraham was, I am, he said, this was so blasphemous because of the way they held in such high esteem the fathers in the faith, and particularly Moses above all. For indeed, there was very little disconnect between the law Revelation of God in the, Jewish, in the Jewish believer's mind and Moses, the mediator of that law, of that revelation. So he calls them here, consider Jesus who was more faithful than Moses. Point number three, we are called in this passage to consider his glory in verses three through four. Where the Holy Spirit says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. 
The same way we saw in chapter one was where Christ was demonstrated to be superior to angels. Here we see Christ being demonstrated to be superior to Moses, specifically superior to Moses in his glory. For as I've already stated, a great amount of glory was bestowed on Moses, but even a greater amount bestowed on Christ. And again, realize the point here. The point is not to run down Moses. It's not that Moses was a bad mediator or that he was a failure. Rather, he was faithful. We know that he was imperfect. We know that he was sinful. We, the, the author could have demonstrated that. He could have said, oh, consider Moses who uh, was hesitant to obey Christ and to go before Pharaoh. Consider Moses who killed the Egyptian. Consider Moses who uh, was distrusting of God and struck the rock with his staff. He could have done all that and demonstrated that Christ is so much greater because he never did those things. But that's not the point that the author is making. The Holy Spirit knows his audience and is graciously laying out for them the greatness of Christ in a way that will be most understandable and hit most closely for them. Therefore, he does not spend time dogging Moses, showing how Christ was worthy of more glory because he was more faithful than Moses, because he had less grumbling than Moses, because he put more trust in the Father than Moses. That would all be true, but that would be a difference in quantity. That would be what we call a quantitative difference. Instead, the Holy Spirit demonstrates Christ is more worthy of glory because of a qualitative difference. That Christ is not worthy of more glory than Moses because he did more than Moses, but he is worth, that would be a quantitative difference. But he is worth more glory than Moses because he is so much greater, so much different. He is of another kind than Moses. They are not even on the same plane. And it's so hard for us to try and understand this reality. But, but consider this. It's, a, it's maybe a, a, a simple example. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but I, I think it might help us see why it's so hard to make this example. Consider if you had Olympic athletes. These are the greatest of the greatest athletes. And, for example, the long jump. And these athletes are, are going around and they're, they're bragging. They're saying, I jumped this far. I set the world record three years ago. And the next long jumper says, oh yeah, but, but I jumped further than that and, and extended that record by an inch and a half. And then the next, runner, the next long jumper says, yeah, but I'm, I, I'm so good. I'm about to break that this year. I'm easily on track to break that record. It would be like Jesus being there among those Olympic athletes and them trying to demonstrate their glory, see their glory. Indeed, their glory was great. Their accomplishments were great. And saying, Jesus, what, how, do you, how great is your glory? And him saying, well, I created every single one of you and gave you the ability to jump and gave you the talents that you have. And there would be no contest that he would be worthy of far greater glory than any of those long jumpers because he created them. He created those long jumpers. It's not even close. It's not even on the same plane that he is qualitatively of a different kind, of a different nature, greater and worthy of more glory than any human being, even than Moses, who is worthy of so much glory and honor. It is this kind of difference by which Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses. Finally, let's consider his position in verses five through six. We're given a second reason to consider, to see how Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses, where he says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house 
as a son. Again, we see the qualitative difference here, the difference between Moses and Christ. Moses, who is a servant in the house of God, faithful, worthy of honor, but a servant nonetheless compared to Christ, who was faithful not merely as a servant, but as a son, bearing authority, bearing the right, bearing the, the right to claim heir of the house, the right to claim authority over the house. Here we see that Christ is worthy of glory, worthy of honor, is superior because of his authority, because of his position. Again, do not think that because Moses is called a servant here that this is some sort of insult. In fact, the word servant here, there are, there are some cases in Scripture where we'll see the word translated servant, doulos, which, which could more accurately be described as slave. But as oftentimes for the sake of, of uh, our culture, our context uh, is translated as servant because that, that hits less hard than the than the word slave because of connotations here in the United States and in our culture based on history. But that word is not the word used here for servant. The word here that's used and translated as servant has the idea of one who, who works for, one who actually does bear some honor and some glory in his service. This is the kind of servant that would be put in charge of a house, would be allowed to go and serve and make purchases for the sake of the house, for the sake of the family, the one who had ability to make certain amounts of decision. There, in fact, was some authority bestowed on this kind of servant. But even this kind of servant of such a high and great standing is nothing compared to the son of the house, the heir. He is the one that will inherit all things. He is the one who carries authority. And because of Christ's authority, he is worthy of more glory. Finally, as we conclude, I want to offer, as I said, a a point of application for us today, and it comes in the last section of chapter six, or excuse me, of chapter three, verse six. And the application that I have for us today is simple, and it is hope in him. After considering Christ, after considering his apostleship, how he serves as our great high priest, after considering his faithfulness, considering his glory, considering his position, I would encourage you now, as the passage does, hope in him. This last verse, chapter six, the last half, or verse six, the last half says, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This word in here, if indeed, this phrase has caused many people a lot of trouble, a lot of problems, a lot of doubt, because this passage has caused many people to think that this sounds as though our salvation is conditional on our own holding fast. That it sounds like it is as though through, uh, that we are able to maintain our salvation by our own hands, by our own strength. But Christian, let me encourage you today that that is not what this passage is saying. That this is not the case. That it is not by your strength that your salvation is maintained, that it is not by your ability that your security, that your assurance is found. For if you are trusting in your own assurance, in your own ability, in your own righteousness, then you are hoping in vain. Let me encourage you, first of all, as we consider this, this passage, first of all, that God has given clear evidence throughout all of Scripture and especially through the New Testament 
that we can trust that those who are in Christ have assurance that they are safe in his arms. That is a reality that is guaranteed for us in Christ Jesus throughout all of the New Testament. I'm going to consider for us just a few passages. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says to his disciples, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. On this salvation train, in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, no one falls off. There is no exemption made for those whom the Lord called, for those whom he justified, but didn't quite hold on to their faith. And therefore, after being called and justified, they fell away and ultimately lost their salvation. There is no category for that in this passage. There is no category for that in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-9 through 9 says, He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Philippians 1 verse 6 is the last one I'll read for you. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Church family, this is just a sample of all the passages in Scripture that give us hope, that give us assurance, that give us confidence, not in our own ability to maintain our salvation, but hope and confidence and assurance that our salvation is rooted in Christ's finished work on the cross. It is his righteousness by which we are judged before God, not our own. So hope in him. The point of this verse is not to make believers doubt their salvation, but rather it is to indicate the distinction between those who are being saved and those who are not. This is a clarification as to who it is that the house of God is comprised of. For indeed, the house of God is not comprised of all people, all people everywhere in every place. It is comprised of those whose confidence, whose boasting is in their hope. Their hope in what? Their hope in Christ. So the question then is, what is your confidence in? Is it in your good works? Is it in your obedience to the law? Is your hope in your church attendance? Or is your hope in Christ Jesus and his death on the cross by which the Lord forgave you of your sins and punished Christ instead? For that is the only means by which we can ever have hope. That is the only means by which we can ever have assurance. And the text here for us today is those whose hope is set on Christ, you are safe in his arms. You are his house. It is for you that Christ is working and mediating and serving each and every day at the right hand of God. This ultimately is the message for us today. Brothers and sisters, consider Christ and upon consideration, hope in him. To the Jews, the message is hope in Christ, not in Moses, not in Abraham, not in angels, not in the law, but hope in Christ and the message for us is the same here today. Hope in Christ. Do not hope in your righteous deeds, 
not in your attendance to the church, not in the faith of your parents, but hope in Christ alone for your salvation. Let's pray.